0: Let's join together in God's good word. First Corinthians from 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, And now faith, hope, and love abide, and these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I got it now. So, Prudy and I have been with you all exactly a year now, and we're so grateful that we found a wonderful home here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's our blessing. And uh, a year ago, uh, my wife was so sick, she couldn't even sit up in bed without help. And yesterday she walked up and down the stairs at the football stadium. So we're, we're really, (laughs) and if she had one wish, she would make me read the scripture over and over again today, but we'll talk about it a little bit. It is, it feels sort of like when football starts, it feels a little bit like the end of summer, doesn't it? It feels like summer's coming to a close. Have you gotten to go anywhere this summer that was fun? You get a few days off, get a few days away. Anybody get to go to the lake? Yeah, right? I love to go to the lake in the summer, and uh, but sometimes I like to go to a bigger body of water. One of the fun things my wife and I love to do is we love to go whale watching. Have you ever done that? Been out to see the whales? Yeah, did they show up? Well, if they didn't, next time take a preacher with you. They always show up when a preacher's there, right? And especially we love to go see, we've been fortunate to see the big blue whales a few times, and if you don't know them, they're, they're the largest creature that ever lived on earth. Forget your puny little dinosaurs, okay? These guys are huge, huge. If you could get one of them to stand up on his tail and dance down Main Street, Edmund, he'd be 10 stories tall. That's a big whale, right? That's a big guy. So when the babies are born, they weigh two tons. And they put on 200 pounds every single day till they reach maturity which makes me feel so much better about all the stuff I'm going to eat on this, this three-day weekend, right? If you feel guilty about that second piece of cake or that third hot dog, just think about whale babies and you'll be fine, right? They're huge. Their tongue, the tongue of a blue whale weighs a ton. Just to give you an idea of how big they are, look, this is a, this is a guy, the little thing there in the middle, that's a guy in a fishing boat. That's like a fishing boat that holds several people and you can see the big blue whale underneath him. They, they're amazing, incredible creatures. God has designed them in, in a very special and unique way. And there are two things that I just love about big blue whales. Number one, they have big hearts, gigantic hearts. Now think about it, a blue whale is bigger than an entire herd of elephants, And I'm not talking about some scrawny bunch of elephants, you know. I'm talking about the big African kind that that we've seen in Africa. Big, giant, they're bigger than a whole herd of elephants. Their their hearts are so large. I don't know if you can see that, that scaffolding, that's about a 16-foot ladder up there on each side of the scaffolding. That's a blue whale heart. And they're so amazing the way God has put them together. They can regulate the beats of their heart. I'm going to heart rehab right now, and I'm trying to do that a little bit. I can't do that at all. But a big blue can be up on the surface with his heart beating 45 beats per minute, and he can go down in the deepest part of the ocean. He can slow his heart down to about two beats per minute so that he can live at the very depths of the ocean. His heart is so big that other sea creatures live inside of it their whole lives. You know, they're just, they're, it's a symbiotic relationship. They live They live their whole life inside of a whale's heart. So when you think about loving somebody with your whole heart, there you go. Uh, That's your object right there. Think about that, right? The second thing I love about big blue Wells is they are unusually loud. Now, I don't know about how you were raised. I was raised in a different time than a lot of you. We didn't have, you know, cell phones and stuff. So when it got to be time for dinner, my mother would stand on the front porch and yell my name. And she could penetrate through walls. She was a champion. You don't know this about my mom. She was a champion yodeler when she was a young kid, young lady. And so she could really be loud when she wanted to. But blue whales have her beat completely. A blue whale, when he sings his song, he can be heard. Anybody know how far away? Underwater. A thousand miles. A thousand miles. I can't even conceive of that right? A thousand miles underwater. That's amazing. It's kind of like the dog whistle thing on the other end. You know, dog whistles are so high, we can't hear them with human ears. Most of the blue whale song is so low, we can't hear it as human beings. But he cries out and he sings in this amazing voice. And why does he do it? Right? Why is he
1: making this powerful, amazing song?
0: Because he's trying to reach other blue whales. Because he wants to be in his tribe, right? We're all wearing shirts today. A lot of us are from our tribe, right? We like to be in our tribe. We're created by God for relationship. So the whale has this beautiful, huge, gigantic voice that can go a thousand miles underwater to reach other whales and say, hey, come for a visit. I'm lonely. Let's go hang out. Let's do something together. Right? We're created that way. It's in our DNA. When the Bible says we're created in God's image, medieval painters and renaissance painters thought that meant we sort of looked like God. You know, you could, you could hold us up and show a picture of God and we kind of look the same. That's not what I think. I think what the Bible is saying is that, is that God is a relational God. And we're created in God's image in that way. We're created to be
1: in relationship. And for that reason...
0: God gave us love. This powerful, incredibly amazing thing is at the center of our life. Scott our one of our staff guys, asked me today, he said, are you preaching on love today because we're all going to be in all of our team colors? Yes, of course. (laughs) Right? Right. Because it's amazing when you think about it. Some of us can be in the stadium yelling at each other and screaming at the folks on the other side who are in a different color. And we come into this building, we walk into this room, we join online, and we're united. As the Apostle Paul said, we're going to talk about Paul a lot today. The Apostle Paul said, we share one baptism. That's amazing. We each get to have fun wearing our team colors, loving our school, loving our alma mater. I Actually, I'm wearing OU shirt today because my wife made me, but uh, <laughs> I tell you something about our love, right? But actually, I went to SMU, and we had the best college football team ever while I was there with Eric Dickerson, Craig James. You had the best team money could buy. We were awesome, <laughs> right? Best college team money could buy. We were the best, right? But we can sit in a room and love each other. Because we share a common love for Jesus Christ. And because we share the common experience of being loved by Jesus Christ. Prudence and I have been so fortunate to travel all over the world. We can go to Africa, we can go to Asia, we can go to to the Middle East. And we're with Christians in all those places. We've been in rural Kenya where people live in huts, no electricity whatsoever. We share within the love of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we walk in and immediately we're connected. But our culture just defines love in a lot of different ways. It's most often defined as feeling, right? I feel this. I feel that. I've done thousands of hours of counseling, tens of thousands of hours. At one point, I had to do 4,000 supervised hours in order to get my certification in counseling. A lot of hours of counseling. And so often people will say to me about a relationship, well, I just don't feel like I'm in love anymore. As if love is like the Oklahoma weather with a mind of its own. Right? It's just something I feel. It's like the flu. I catch it, and if I wait around long enough, maybe I'll be over it. Right? Do you think that God that created the blue whale would make love like that? For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son, right? Right? Greater love has no man than this, but no person has greater love than that offer their life for another. That's the kind of love God's talking about. In fact, the Bible defines love very differently. According to the, the Bible, love is something completely different. It's not something that's temporal or or just stays for a little while or it's passive or or something that, that we just sort of feel for a while and then lose. In the Bible, love is a choice. Love is making the decision to commit yourself to someone or a group, the church, the body of Christ, with all that you have. And pour out everything you have. Now, when your team's down on the goal line, right, and you're, you're, you need that score to win the game, you know what it's like to pour out everything, right? I mean, you're committed. You're cheering for them to get that ball over the goal line. The love in the Bible, the way the Bible describes it, is that every day and every moment of every day. Now, none of us do that perfectly, of course the call is to come back and recommit to that again and again. Now, I kind of think I'm an expert on love. My wife might disagree, but uh, as a pastor, last year I did, I performed my 600th wedding. So that's 600 premarital um, counseling times that I had with people, right? Series of, of premarital counseling, 600 times. Okay, to be honest, about 620, but you know, 20 of them didn't, ended up not getting married, so we, we don't want to talk about those today, right? We're not going to talk about that group today, that's a whole, that's another sermon for another day, right? And of the 600 that got married, probably some of them shouldn't have, but they did. And even more than that, I'm a step-parent. I don't know that I'm an expert on anything else, but I'm but being a step-parent, I, at least I've lived that experience, Some of you are step-parents. Maybe it's the same for all parents, but when you're a step-parent, you have to love without expecting to be loved in return. Maybe ever. Maybe ever. And every step-parent braces themselves for that day, that moment, when a child that you are in some way responsible for bows up their back, puts their feet down hard and says, you're not my real parent, you can't tell me what to do, right? Right? Every step-parent here knows that feeling. Well, fortunately for us, that never happened with our girls. And it never happened with our first three grandchildren. And we have four grandchildren. <laughs> so, so do the math, right? I used to play this game with them when they were little. And uh, we'd all be together. This is uh, from a particular day I'm going to tell you about. We were all gathered up there together. And we would play this. I had this thing I created called Kids Club. Basically, it was their parents begging me to get them away from them for a while so I could get a break. All you parents know what that's about. And we would do silly games and crazy things and all the stuff I learned in Boy Scouts and youth ministry. We'd do all those things. And we would do fun stuff. Like for lunch, we'd just have chocolate cake. Basically, that's what I wanted to do. They just happened to participate, right? And then we would all end up sitting in a big chair. I used to go to furniture stores and shop for chairs and say, no, it's got a whole five people. I'm sorry. Right, We'd end up in a big chair watching their favorite Disney movie or whatever they were into at the time. And Allie is the youngest. Here she is with little Katie. Katie is, is our dog who is now, this month, turned 17 years old. So Katie raised Allie, and that tells you kind of Allie's age at that time. She's just a couple years old, about three, I think, at that point, two at that point. And um, there she is with, with, with Katie, and, and she was the littlest, so she was always kind of getting shoved to the back and pushed aside and always having to kind of fight her way with her, with her brother and her, her two cousins to, to get attention, to, you know, and she likes attention a lot. She's a real member of our family. She likes to be in the spotlight. And so one day, one day, they were all piling in that chair with me, and Allie kind of got pushed to the outside. She just wasn't going to have it anymore. I don't know if you've ever had a sibling issue in your family, but she took her hand and just shoved her. Okay, she hit her brother. It might as well be, it's church, i got to be honest, right? And so I started scolding her, saying, "Ali, you can't hit your brother. We're going to stop. We're not going to play the games anymore. You know, kids club is going to be over, blah, blah, blah. Wrong kid to say that to. She bowed up her back. She crossed her arms. She looked me straight in the eye and said, You're not my real papa. I don't have to do anything you say. <laughs> right? Because I'm a step, right? And, and nobody had told her that. Somehow she'd figure that out. Somebody had kind of put it all together, helped her put it all together. And she went across the room and sat in another chair. I mean, we may not be connected biologically, but emotionally we're pretty connected. Because I can just see myself going, okay, you're not going to tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Nobody can tell me not to. Don't, don't ask my wife about that later, Please. She sat over there for a moment, and I looked at her, and I said, Allie, you're right. Now, let me just say something to you. There's going to come a point in your relationship with the people around you that you love the most, and here I'm going to save you, okay? The way God saved me. There's going to come a moment when you want to respond, and you have this speech in your head of how you've endured injustice Right, and you want to set the scales of justice right, and you want to pour out on this other person who's hurt you. Don't do it. Be quiet. Hush. Just remember, in that moment, Pastor Robert said, "Hush
1: and hush," and pray that God will give you the words
0: that need to be said. I wasn't smart enough to think all that through in my head, but that's what happened. I was so taken aback and so hurt. I've been with that child since she came screaming into this world. And she was screaming. It was so hard to hear that.
1: I paused. I said,
0: Allie, you're right. I'm a Methodist preacher. I know Methodist theology, right? At times like that, it's one of what we believe really matters. And as Methodists, Methodist, we believe in choice. Big time, we choose how we live. I said, Al, you're right. I can't make you love me. I can't make you think of me as family. But even when you don't love me, I still love you. And I always, always will. It's a choice. And that's the choice I'm making. Now, the other kids were like, you know, when you get, when you get to hammer down on your sibling, right? You know, you, that's a good moment. They're like, we love papa we want you to be our papa you'll always be our papa you know and any other kid would have crumbled at that point but Allie's just sitting there not gonna do it for about 120 seconds and she said papa is it really a choice and before i could answer she had landed back in my lap and said papa you're my papa i always want you to be my papa and that was a great moment right It was worth all the pain. It was worth shutting up and not saying what I really felt and letting God have that moment. And sometimes in a relationship, when things are at their worst, you got to let God have that moment. Can you hear me? Let God have that moment. It's not your moment. It's not your time. I mean, I said to Allie, love is a choice. And I choose to love you even when you don't love me. She jumped back in my lap right? This is a picture from that day, that moment. We both look pretty happy, don't we? And I said to the other kids, Allie's back, let's celebrate. And everybody cheered, yay, Allie's back, we'll go have chocolate cake for lunch because that's what Papa always does. And it was great, great moment, right? And it reminded me of a story out of the Bible. Luke 15, about a boy who, who ran away from home and got himself in all kinds of trouble. And he comes back to home, and he doesn't even know if he's going to be loved or accepted. He's just hoping maybe he can get, get a job as a slave there. And his dad throws down everything and runs out and embraces him and throws a party for him. It's the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, and that, that's, that's what happened in a, in a nutshell. And that's the story of how God loves us. And sometimes we read that story and we think, ah, it's so awesome, God loves me that way. Even when I'm at my worst and mess up the most, God welcomes me back and loves me and celebrates and wraps his arms around me. That's true. You're 100% right if you get that out of that story. But you're also only 50% right. Because the purpose of the story is to tell us how God loves us, but it's also to call us to love people around us in the same way. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching about recovering lost things.
1: And how people who lose things lose people, seek them out and welcome them back. And that's the heart of love.
0: The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about love, didn't he? I want you to read through a few of these verses with me. I I was able to quickly, just thumbing through real fast, the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament and found 40 examples of love, things he said about love. Okay, we're not going to read them all. Okay, so relax. But we're going to read a few because I just want you to get a sense of who Paul is because sometimes he kind of gets bad-pressed by people who don't really read everything about him. You'll have a couple of Bible studies coming up here just starting next week. Disciple Bible study. You're going to, get to learn a lot about that. But let's, let's just read the words of Paul together. Read with me. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Let's read the next one. Let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16.14. And again, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14 and this and live in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to god ephesians 5 2 and then this final reading together for i am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Romans 8, 38 through 39. And and you better write this down right here and put it in your will if you don't want that read at your funeral, because if you have a Methodist pastor to your funeral, we're going to read that, right? Because it's so powerful. And it's a part of our funeral service. Now, Paul probably is best known when it comes to writing about love for what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, well, what he and somebody else wrote, we'll talk about that in a moment. I just taught a class in our church called Legacy, and we were learning to, to tell other people how much we love them. And, and, and it was, it's a really important class. I got to use it, the stuff we learned in there just recently in my life. We were trying to, to learn to say I love you to people around us, people that matter to us, in a way that they could hold on to for the rest of their life, that they could hold on to when things got challenging and when things got hard. In a way that they could hold on to even if we died. Even if we died, they would know how much we loved them. And the model for that class is, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's incredible writing that we call the love chapter. There are two things you should know right up front about that passage, about the scripture we read. We read part of it today. Number one, it wasn't written about or for marriage. 600 weddings, over 600 weddings, I've done probably 95% of those weddings they've asked for 1 Corinthians 13 to be read, which is very appropriate. But it wasn't written about marriage or for marriage. In fact, in a way, it was written in the middle of a finance campaign. Every pastor has been desperate enough in a finance campaign to reach out for whatever they can to get it in front of the congregation and say, here's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what Paul does. He was trying to bring a divided church back together, and he was trying to raise money to go feed starving people. Been a lot of debate about apportionments in, in the Methodist church lately in the newspapers who don't know anything about it. But we contribute through our offering through something called apportionments. We share that money together as congregations and we help people. And it comes from right here by what happened in the New Testament. And that's what Paul's doing. And he's trying to bring the church, this fighting, conflicted church back together so they can go out in the world and do the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why these words are used. That's why he puts them down on papyrus. He puts them down on papyrus, the congregation, to read and remember. Get over your fussing with each other. And Get out there and start doing the work of Christ in the world. The second thing is it wasn't written by Paul himself. It was written by, by a co-author, and the co-author's name is Thosthenes. And I think a lot of people read 1 Corinthians and don't really kind of skip over the introduction and don't really pick it up because it's there in the introduction. That's really important to, to know that. We'll talk about why in a minute, but, but just know this is a group effort. This is not just one guy coming up saying, Oh, y'all love each other. It's more than that. Now, I had a wonderful teacher in seminary. It was in church, he was in church history, and I adored him so much because on the first minutes of every class, every semester, he handed out the final. There was no mystery about it. You knew exactly what you had to prepare for. It was laying right in front of you in the first five minutes of class. You had every question that was going to be on the semester final, the year final, etc. And then he lectured to those questions all year long, and he got you ready. So I want to do the same thing today. 1 Corinthians 13, the main point. Here's your final, the answer to your question on your final today. Christians are called to a love that puts others first and points to Jesus. We're called to love in a way that puts others first and points to Jesus. And you need to write that down somewhere. Because you need to test what you're doing in your relationships and ask that question. Am I doing this in a way that puts others first and points to Jesus? That's a really, really, really crucial thing for what Paul and Sosthenes are trying to do here. Because remember, they're writing to a divided Corinthian church. A church where some people say, oh, okay, here's what you need to do to, to be a follower of Jesus and to be saved. And you do these five things and it proves that, that you're a follower of Jesus, that you're saved, you're going to heaven. Another group is over here saying, "No, oh, no, here's what you need to do. You need to do these things. And if you do these things, that proves it. They were were fighting a conflict over how you demonstrate you're living a holy life. Now, living a holy life is really important. That that means your life is set apart for the work of Jesus. Now, every one of us in here is called to live a holy life. But listen to what they had turned it into. It wasn't about living for God. It was about living for themselves. about showing how worthy they were. Paul later will write, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we all are. And so Paul and Sosthenes point out that you can live a holy life, you can do all the right stuff
1: and still live a life that's hollow and empty. A life that's meaningless.
0: So they begin to work with this word agape, which appears about 200 times in the New Testament. So a pretty important word. In each of those passages we read from Paul, that word is there. C.S. Lewis said, and he was a great man of languages and words, C.S. Lewis said there are four different kinds of words in the New Testament for love. Actually, there's probably more like seven. There are a lot of different words. But this is a very particular word. And what Paul and Sosthenes do is they redefine the word. They redefine it. Because in, in their time, I want you to think about that for a moment. A lot of Christians could walk in today and Pastor Brandon could get up and give him a test and they'd say, what does baby?" And they say, well, it's the love of God for us and the way we're called to love God. And they'd be right. But none of that's true until this letter from Paul. That's Thosthenes. They take a word that in the Greek language of their time was used in philosophy to describe things that were whole and perfect and complete or things that were incredibly erotic. And they redefine it to talk about a kind of love that puts others first. A kind of love that points to the Christ. So a sacrificial kind of love, and a kind of love, as we shall see, that has very distinct things about it. Now, as they deliver this message, the authors themselves are the message. I mean, sometimes you you get words and and they're just words, but these guys are delivering something in which they themselves are the messengers. They both have been previously persecuted Christians. They both previously persecuted Christians, but they both became followers of Christ because they were transformed by their love for Jesus and the love they experienced from Jesus. For a long time, we didn't know much about Sosthenes. That's why you probably may have never heard about him. If you are up in Sunday school, you probably never heard about him. But lately, scholarship has helped us understand who he is. He was a a leader of a synagogue. So a very powerful Jewish leader. And like Paul, when Paul first started, when we first get Paul's story in the book of Acts, Sosthenes persecuted Christians. He was about putting them in prison, maybe even sending them to death. In fact, some scholars now believe that Sosthenes himself led a persecution against Paul. So here were two guys who hated Christians. And everybody who receives this letter knows that. Now they're calling them to love and they're demonstrating with their own lives what love is really about, what agape means. It's an incredible and amazing thing to the people who first received this letter. Look at these guys who hated us. They were trying to throw us in prison. They were trying to kill us. and Now they love us and they're trying to help us and they're trying to bless us and they're walking the same walk we're walking with Jesus. What an incredible example of agape. There are three things about agape love that I'd like you to know. First, Paul and Sosthenes say it's superior to all other forms of discipleship. Everything in discipleship is important. Praying is important. Witnessing is important. Reading the scripture is important. But if you do those things without love or allowing your heart to be transformed by love, they become meaningless. Agape love is the most important, they say. Two, it demonstrates specific qualities, which we're going to go through in a moment. You find those in verses 4 through 7. And in your personal um, faith life and devotional life, I I would encourage you to reflect on these verses often. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. and say, does my love demonstrate this? Is, Is my love for my husband or my wife demonstrating this? Is my love for my fellow Christians demonstrating this? the entire conflict in the Methodist denomination would go away in five minutes if we just all did that. It would just be over, right? We've forgotten that and that's why we struggle. That's why we struggle in our relationships too. Finally, the third thing is it endures forever. Now that's the thing that's really challenging for me because we live in a throwaway culture, right? I've been a pastor. I've done lots of funerals, not a lot, but some funerals. Where me I show up, and the guys from the funeral home shows up, and nobody else shows up. That's it.
1: We throw people away. We throw everything away. And Paul and Sosthenes are saying, "To love agape love, you make a lifetime commitment.
0: Every one of those couples I married made a lifetime commitment some of them have done amazing jobs of keeping that commitment. Think about one young couple I married, and they were, they were just in their 30s. She developed a terrible disease, had to go into a nursing home not long after they were married. He has stood by her side all these years, decades now. Never given up on loving her. That's what this love is about. In the passage, there are two words describe what love is so two words describe what love is there are four words that describe what love does all the time and there are eight words describe what love is not i'm a statistician i got to give you the numbers that's how it goes right so here we're going to talk about that what love is two things two things and if you just get these two things, and that's all you learned today, and walk out of here, and you can kind of remember that, or you put it in your notes, put it in your Bible, in your phone, or wherever. Maybe write it in your calendar for this day and have it sh- pop up every week. Right? Then you got it. You did great. The first thing is, love is patient. Right? We start off with the hardest one, I guess. Right? I'm not a patient person. I am not we, we were in line for something recently in our cars. All the cars lined up. I started to get out of my car and yell at people. My voice, please, please don't do that. You know, I mean, I'm just not patient. But in love, God has blessed me. It's, a, it's amazing how patient I can be in my relationships with the people I love. Not because of me, but because of God. And God will bless you in that if you allow God to do that. It's like I said, there are these moments you just got to be quiet. And you got to say, Lord, I'm giving you this moment in this relationship. It's not my moment anymore. Not my words, not my time. God, I'm giving you this. This is is for you. So the next thing that love is, is it goes right with the patient part. Right with the patient part. Love is kind. Now I'm not just saying that love is nice. Right? I mean, it's nice if if you're in line at Starbucks and somebody pays for your, your drink. That's nice. That's good. That's kind. I'm talking about something much deeper than that. My mom ran the dorms at OCU for almost 40 years. And and she found a way to be kind in everything she did. She's the kindest person I ever knew. She found a way, as a mature Christian, she'd been a former army officer, she found a way as a a mature Christian to be a servant to people who are 18, 19, 20 years old. She did every minute of her life. That's, That's how she lived. She was there for kids when they broke up with their their girlfriend. She was there for for kids when they didn't have a date on Friday night and everybody else did. She was there for kids when when rush happened and, and they didn't get chosen. She just made her life service. And that's kindness. Now, what does love do all the time? We said it endures forever, right? It's eternal. Love is always ready to make allowances. Okay, Robert's not, so don't test me, right? But yeah, go ahead. The love is ready to make allowances. And what that means is, is love does not expect perfection. If you come to me as your pastor or as a counselor and say, Robert, I, I, I want to love my husband or I want to love my wife or I want to love my grandkids, but I need them to be perfect, I'm going to say, go home. There's nothing I can do for you. Right? We're human beings. We're all just whales swimming around in the depth of the ocean, singing our song, hoping other whales will find us. None of us are perfect. The only perfect one of us died on the cross out of love for all of us. And that centrally unites us. Love is always ready to trust. We have a, fam- favorite, a famous cliche in our culture. Love, trust has to be earned. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I remember going to football practice the very first day. I didn't know anything about the coach. Right? But I trusted him. I gave him my trust. And it, it was a good thing. He was a great coach. Love is, trust is something we give. It's a gift. It's a present. And we give it, and, and it's a reason it comes after the, the part where, where, where love is patient and kind and doesn't give up, right? It's because trust is hard. We get hurt. We get disappointed. And you have to reinvest and recommit your trust over and over again, or you will never love. You'll never experience a deep love. You just have to do it. So love is always ready to hope. Remember talking about things that love always does. Love is always hopeful. Love is always finding a way. My friend, when the doctors came in and said, your wife had this disease, she has Huntington's, she's going to be, you know, this horrible ordeal. He can say to his wife, we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. If you can offer another person hope, then you are doing the intentional work of Jesus Christ. Love is always ready to endure what comes. I didn't know what my marriage vows were until my wife was in a hospital for a month. I mean, I did my best. I tried to live them out. There are things in life that are going to challenge you at your core. Challenge, challenge you at your depths. And the one thing you can hang on to is knowing that love is there to endure. And you don't do it by yourself, God does it with you. Jesus walks that walk with you. That's why God sent Jesus into the world. So he'd be there to walk with us. Now, Paul and Sosthenes also tells us what love is not love is never jealous. You I mean, think I don't have a jealousy problem. Okay. Do you have a comp- competition problem? Yeah? Do you keep a, a score in the back of your head? Okay, she got three more things than I got. Or I've done the dishes six times this week. She's only done once. Right? Or, or I've done the la- I do the laundry all the time. Yeah, right? Right. You know that, right? Yeah. That's jealousy. That's not love. Love is not boastful. Hey, honey. I did the laundry for you today. How many times my wife has heard that, don't say anything? Right? Right? Love is about giving it away, not about claiming it. So love is not conceited. Love is not about me, it's not about what I get, it's not about the recognition or the affirmation that I get. And every time that I get into that thing with, I'm not being recognized, I'm not being thanked, I'm not being appreciated, I've wandered out of love. I'm in something else at that point. I'm not in love. And I got to find my way back. I think my mom wrote this one. This is a King James, sort of a King James language. Love is never rude. I mean, it just sounds like such a thing my mom would say. If my mom could, was a tattoo artist, she would have tattooed that somewhere on my body, so I'd never forget it. This is about respect. You treat the other person with respect. Now, sometimes the longer you're in a relationship with someone, the harder that is. Right? We take them for granted. It's about getting up every morning and saying, how am I going to honor this person? How am I going to see them in the way that Jesus sees them? Does Jesus loved them enough to die for them. Surely I can love them enough to pick up their clothes. Right? Or I can love them enough to, to, to unload the dishwasher and put the, put the dishes away without demanding attention for it. Because love is not Selfish love is not about me or what i'm getting out of it and this one is so hard love is not easily provoked right we all keep this kind of score thing i think someday scientists will discover we have a gland in the back of our head somewhere that's a little scoreboard and we're scoring the people around us you know oh well you know they're a little behind in the game of loving me they're a little behind in the game of respecting me You know, they better bring up their game or I'm going to have to kick them out. They're going to go to the penalty box for a while. Right? Love doesn't do that. It's not provoked. It's not looking for a fight. Love is looking for ways. Paul and Sosthenes, C.S. Lewis reflecting on their work said, love is looking for ways to heal the world. Heal the world. That's what love is supposed to do. So love does not store up grievances. Let me just tell you, if you've got a list of the things you're, Your spouse or your child or your mom or your dad or whoever did wrong, and you just keep feeding that and nurturing it all the time so that it stays healthy and grows, you know, and you're out there working in that garden all day long. You need to dig that thing up. You need to dig a hole, put it in it, pour dirt on top of it, put stones on top of it, say a prayer over it, and walk away. It's going to break your heart, it's going to destroy your relationship. And it's going to show up in your other relationships. Because if you're carrying around that kind of weight and anger and frustration, it's not something that just stays in one relationship. It's going to show up somewhere else. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but finds its joy in the truth. Love is about wholeness and completeness. That's the original meaning of agape. It's about helping to make things whole and complete. And Paul, of course, writes these famous words that that wrap up the whole thing. First thir- Corinthians 13 ends with these words. Let's read it together. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Do you believe that now? Yeah, right? After hearing what Paul and Sosthenes have to say, do you believe that? Do you believe it in your heart? Do you believe it in enough to go out and change things? And do things differently? Because that's the real question for Christians. Well, here's a picture of our little Allie now. She's graduating. So this is when she was graduating from Santa Fe a few weeks ago, it seems like. I don't know what she's carrying. She's, she's carrying her phone, I think, of course, <laughs> right? right? It was such a great moment, such a wonderful thing. And you, you, you've done that with kids and grandkids in your life. And you know, to see them go from, from literally you know, birth to, to these big moments in their life, it's so powerful. And when Allie went through confirmation, she made vows to God in the church. We're getting ready to start confirmations, Get ready to start next week. And we're going to be talking to young people about making these love commitments that will last forever. Now, they don't need to end up in a court in Oklahoma City somewhere, or at the Oklahoma Supreme Court. They need to be worked out. We love each other. We cherish each other. We forgive each other. We're going to teach the kids to do that. And they're really not kids. They're really grown up in the spirit. We're going to recognize that and celebrate that. Allie went through all of that. And the question for me was, Does it stick? Does it make a difference? When you go through confirmation, does it matter? Well, she went to OU. After she'd made a covenant, she promised to love. She went to OU and she got to try it out, right? Because she went through rush. We call it rush. I know it's called something different now, recruitment, I think. This is her getting ready to go to college. Beautiful child of mine. And, And she went there and things didn't go so perfectly at first. There were some hard, hard hours, right? Some of you've been through it or had kids go through. You know what can happen. But Allie hung in there, and her faith shone through. In fact, somebody was involved in it called me and said, "I just want you to know that every day in this process, your granddaughter Allie has let her faith in Jesus Christ shine through." That's it. I can die happy now, except if I got three more working that I got to get that done with them too, right? I mean, that's incredible. Those vows she made at confirmation, she's living out now on campus. Being Christian is making the choice to love even when it's hard. That's why we make covenants. That's why you make a covenant when you join the church. That's why you make a covenant confirmation. That's why you make a covenant when you get married. The covenant is there to help you keep loving even when you don't want to. It's there to remind us that God is helping us love. And that God is making that journey with us. Christ is there every moment with us. And I want you to, to know that. It's really important because the action step this week is hard. But it can be life-changing for you and the people around you. Your action step is to find one place in your life where you have backed away from love. One place in your life where you've backed away from love and reconnect and recommit to that love. And just trust God to make that journey with you. See what God can do if you give God that much room to work in your heart, in your love, and in your life. And now let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done,